2: Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825.
3: Sharp mind, strong voice, Buck Sexton. Yes, indeed, the plot thickens, my friends. Buck Sexton with America Now. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, A a lot on the docket for today. Of course, Susan Rice, surveillance, the Trump administration, the Russia investigation, all that good stuff. We'll get to it in just a moment. But then we'll talk a bit about the fight over the Gorsuch Supreme Court nomination. Don't know how much of a fight it's really going to be at this point, considering that Republicans uh, can win if only they decide they want to win, which I don't think is an open question, but we'll get there. Also, a horrific chemical weapons attack in Syria and what it means for U.S. foreign policy and the Trump administration. Today is Equal Pay Day, where things are repeated that make certain people feel good but aren't true, and nobody wants to just tell the American people for whatever reason that they're not true, it seems, or I shouldn't say nobody, but not enough people, uh, about Equal Pay Day and the myths upon which it is built. And then we'll also get into the woolly mammoths, and you're like, "What is that all about?" Well, you're gonna have to wait and see. Um, I can't just jump right to mammoths right now. I can't, I can't give you the dessert before you've even had the salad or the entree, my friends. Uh, so we'll talk about mammoths later on in the show. We we did have an expert on uh, genetic engineering on the show earlier about how they can now more or less create a, a mammoth, or they're getting close to it using. Uh, genetic manipulation, but that's a, a whole a whole story for another time. Mammoths, closing out the show. First, uh, a, a story that we first touched on yesterday, and we've got so much more information now, and I would like to spend a good chunk of time with you on this. We have been told for months that the Trump administration had illicit contacts with Russia and was part of a Russia conspiracy, that Russia, in a stroke of incredible propaganda brilliance, quote, hacked our election. What does that mean to hack an election? Nobody knows. It just sounds scary. So they keep saying it. Russia hacked the election. And if you don't agree with that, it's become like climate change. Do you believe in climate change? If you ask any questions, the answer is no, and you're a terrible person. If you don't believe that Russia hacked our election, you are a Trump bot, you're not to be trusted, you have no faculties of reason, and so on and so forth. But the more we find out about this, the more skeptical one would have to become of so many of these claims. And on, you have two parallel investigations happening right now, or two parallel narratives. Better way to put it than investigation. One is what was done, if anything by Trump or his associates to assist, aid, abet, collude, uh, and come up with a conspiracy with the Russians vis-a-vis the election versus Hillary Clinton. What what What's there? That's one side. The other side is, was there a widespread or high-level effort to try and use surveillance capabilities of the intelligence community against Trump and his associates to embarrass the incoming administration, perhaps even take the whole administration down. That ended with no real information or data to support the initial thesis in any way, shape, or form. And so it was just either based on opportunism or paranoia or a combination of both. It may very well be the case that the Obama administration and some senior, senior officials in it were both paranoid and opportunistic in their application of intelligence community discretion. Um, but we don't know the answers yet. It was fascinating to see that the Obama administration or rather that the media, when confronted with the possibility even that a senior member of the Obama administration did something wrong, well, of course, as we knew they would. They, they want to just chase the facts. They want the story, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. CNN's Don Lemon, whom I know uh, well from my former life at CNN, Uh, He he made sure that everybody knew just how open minded the mainstream press is to the allegation that Susan Rice, as national security Advisor, may have abused her discretion with regard to intelligence collection for partisan purposes. That's the allegation. Not saying it's proven yet. But Don wants everyone to know that they take this very seriously. They'll get to the bottom of this play clip. Thirty four,
4: please. The Washington Post today calls the latest claims about Susan Rice anatomy of a fake scandal ginned up by right-wing media and Trump. So let us be very clear about this. There is no evidence whatsoever that the Trump team surveilled or spied on or was spied on illegally. There is no evidence that backs up the president's original claim. And on this program tonight, we will not insult your intelligence by pretending otherwise, nor will we aid and abet the people who are trying to misinform you, the American people, by creating A diversion.
3: Uh, They will not aid and abet the misinforming. Uh, That's kind of surprising. That's not what I thought would be happening here. It's not surprising at all, of course. I'm totally kidding. We knew that Don Lemon and others like him would not want to go with this story at all because this wasn't part of the prescribed narrative. This was a surprise. They can run with the Russia allegations all day. That Trump is a traitor has become an article of widely accepted wisdom within the mainstream press. But that there may have been some foul play from one of Obama's most trusted, most powerful confidants. The same one who, by the way, oh, you will recall back in in the day... Uh, told us all that there was a protest, if you remember. There was a a protest that happened, and that that's what led to the Benghazi attack, that it was just a protest. So she has no problem lying to us. Uh, She has no problem lying to us about things. And then... We find out that just recently she had something here to say. But before I, before I get to the Susan Rice and the just recently, it should be noted that not only Don Lemon, but there were others as well who said that this was a, non, a non-story, not even worthy of talking about, but they would talk about it a little bit.
4: I spoke today with senior, former senior U.S. intelligence officials, the senior most, who served both yeah, Republican nice, and Democratic yeah. administrations. And this is what they've told me about this story. They said one... This is not unusual, this happens, Uh, that that when you are briefed on intelligence communications like this, sometimes senior national security officials can ask the intelligence community to identify the Americans either mentioned uh, in those conversations or on the other side of those phone calls. It's not up to that senior U.S. national security official to make that decision. It's then up to the intelligence agencies, to the NSA. They decide what's appropriate to then unmask for that senior official. This appears to be a story largely ginned up, partly as as a distraction from from this larger investigation.
3: Yeah, about that. First of all, so we have uh, various uh, individuals out there, and I told you yesterday, nothing in the New York Times front page, nothing in the Washington Post front page about what one would think would be a pretty explosive story. It certainly has an allegation Merits consideration. It was reported on not just by Fox News, but also by Bloomberg News's Eli Lake, uh, who has excellent sources in the national security complex. Uh, But also this notion, which we will return to, because this requires in-depth analysis to to get to the bottom of all this, this notion that, well, no, she requests the unmasking, and then the intelligence agencies have to approve it. Um, Well, if it's within her discretion... Do we think how many senior intelligence officials really, want, really would want to tell the national security Advisor, Oh no, sorry. Which one of, do you do you think it is more or less likely that they would go along with the request from the most powerful national security figure in the Obama White House? I don't know. I'm analyzing, but I ask you that question. I think it's very easy to assume that there are all these checks and balances. In place, you know, checks and balances like what we have on the IRS to prevent politicized targeting for clearly partisan reasons and ideology. Um, But let's go back to Susan Rice for a moment. She's at the center of all of this. She is getting her own day in the news cycle today. And we remember her best for, well, explaining in such precise and clear terms just exactly what happened. This was a few days afterwards, remember? What happened in Benghazi, 2012, when we lost four Americans, including a U.S. ambassador and three other U.S. citizens who were bravely serving their country, who died uh, in that service, and we didn't get any answers from the White House initially until, well, oh, that's right, she went on the Sunday shows. And what did she tell us?
5: What our assessment is as of the present is in fact what it began spontaneously in Benghazi, uh, as a reaction to what had transpired some hours earlier in Cairo, where, of course, as you know, uh, there was a, a violent protest outside of our embassy. I don't have time to think about a false uh, controversy in the midst of all of the swirl uh, about okay, the things like so so
3: talking. She said, she said about the YouTube. She said it was a response to the YouTube video. She was the original blame it on the video national security official from the Obama administration. It was a video. Later on, Hillary told the parents of one of the fallen in Benghazi, you know, don't worry, we're going to get the guy who got the video. Well, and that was, I'm sure, really reassuring. Um, but you could say, Buck, that was 2012. People make mistakes. That's a pretty big mistake to a lot of the American people. And then, by the way, to be promoted by the Obama administration after telling that lie in term two, to go from... Uh, To go from U.S. ambassador to the United Nations to national security advisor, they wanted to make her secretary of state, but that would have required some difficult discussions in front of the whole, you know, Senate thing. So that was a problem for her. So they made her national security advisor. But with all the talk of masking, unmasking and incidental collection, the American public has gotten quite an education in surveillance and intelligence collection and the language used therein recently, former National Security Advisor Advisor Susan Rice was on PBS and she offered up this very clear statement of, I don't know.
5: I know nothing about this. I was surprised to see uh, reports from uh, Chairman Yunus on that uh, count today. So today, uh, I really don't know to what uh chairman nunez was referring
3: she, that was specifically with regard to unmasking that that's a problem um that's a problem because oh uh we fast forward to how things went today on msnbc after the story broke yesterday thanks to fox and bloomberg The former National Security Advisor is on MSNBC because if you want to dispel notions about how partisan you are, you go right to MSNBC. That's a good move. She's on MSNBC, and she has to say the following
5: that somehow uh, Obama administration officials uh, utilized intelligence for political purposes. That's absolutely false. Let me explain how this works. I was a national security advisor. My job is to protect the American people and the security of our country. That's the same as the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, the CIA director. And every morning, to enable us to do that, we receive uh, from the intelligence community a compilation of intelligence reports that the IC, the intelligence community, has selected for us on a daily basis to give us the best information as to w- what's going on around the world. I received those reports, as did each of those other officials. Okay, yeah, and uh, there were occasions.
3: Stuff. Oh, no, keep, keep playing. Well, there were occasions. Keep going with
5: when it. When I would receive a report in which uh, a U.S. person was referred to. Name not provided, just U.S. person. And sometimes in that context, in order to understand the importance of the report and assess its significance, it was necessary to find out or request the information as to who that U.S. official
3: was. Wait a second. That seems quite a bit difference from, uh, quite a bit of difference from, uh, what was it, a couple of weeks ago when she said... Tw- I know nothing about this. I was wait, surprised to see... Wait, wait, hold on. See, oh, wait, stop. Uh, I, I'm confused. I know nothing about this? Now she's giving a lecture class to MSNBC on unmasking and every detail about it. But I I know nothing about this. Let me offer something to you, and it brings together a couple of different concepts. But from my time, uh, my short but very interesting period of time uh, with the NYPD Intelligence Division, I remember speaking to some of the uh, lifelong law enforcement officers, detectives primarily, that I was working with. And one of them said to me once, you just have to look for the lie. And then you really, then everything else, it's a question of lining it up and putting it in place. But when you have somebody who's innocent, lies are unusual. When you have somebody who's guilty, lies come fast and furious. Lies appear quite easily. And once you've established that someone has lied to you about a material fact, then it's just, well, how do we prove all the rest of it? Now, Susan Rice has certainly lied before, and she lied when she said, I know nothing about unmasking. So that all, all, already and automatically should raise a lot of questions about everything else that she says. And remember, no one forced her to go on PBS. She's a person in in private life. Now, she doesn't have to do She could just go off and you know hang out wherever. But she went on TV and she lied about this. But in fact, it's more than that because she could have gone on TV and just said... I can't confirm or deny any of this. And you know what? While a lot of us would see that as suspicious, it's not necessarily. She could have gotten away with just saying, look, I can't confirm or deny any details of any of this because of the classification of the information involved. That might be a convenient answer, but it's a real answer. What she said is, I know nothing about this. I know nothing. I have no knowledge about this. That is exculpatory. That is, I got n- nothing to see here. There's nothing wrong which is more than she had to say in the context of that interview. So now I would ask you, why lie? If you're Susan Rice, why go on TV and lie? You don't have to. You're not under oath, obviously, but you don't have to do this. You could just say it's all so classified and complicated. But she wanted to tell us something that was untrue. Look for the lie, and then the rest can fall into place, my friends. So Susan Rice... Former National Security Advisor in the Obama administration says uh, that she knows nothing, which is not true. And she didn't have to say, I know nothing. She could have said, I can't talk about this. And I would have had to say, that's a that's a fair way to go here. Convenient, but not wrong. There's a difference. But I know nothing is a lie. right? I, I know nothing is not true. Because today she's telling us she knows a lot. Um, but then she also continued on to give us excuses for accusations that aren't really being made in the reporting. Uh, 20- Did you
5: seek the names of people involved in, to, to unmask the names of people involved in the Trump transition, the Trump campaign, people surrounding the pre- the the president elect. Let me be clear. In order to spy on them. In absolutely. Order to expose them. Absolutely. Not for any political purposes to spy, expose anything. But Did you let pause. me make the name of the Notice
3: my... it's for, not for any political purposes. That was the specific. Not for political purposes. Oh, okay. Keep going.
5: Flynn. I leaked nothing to nobody.
3: And I leaked nothing to nobody. Um, okay. Uh, that's not really what's at issue here. I'm not saying, uh, n- nor does anyone else that I think is following this issue and being honest about it, that NSA Rice was leaking information, but was she requesting information about the communications intercepted through intelligence collection of either Donald Trump or his top campaign associates? Was was she doing that? By the way, after the election. What could be the possible rationale for that? That's what we really want to know. You'll notice that was the question I was asking yesterday. Sure, unmasking is a procedure you can go through. You can, But why would that procedure entail the communications of either Donald Trump or his top associates? What would be the logical reasoning behind that? I struggle with it. Unless you thought maybe you were going to expose a massive conspiracy that would take down the administration, then maybe you'd ask. He's an ex CIA officer who
2: knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888 900 Buck. Make contact.
3: Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888 900 2825. All right. Let's get back into this interview with uh, Susan Rice on MSNBC earlier today. I just—I part of me have to say, she can go on. Let's just be very clear on this. She can go on any network. She could at least go on on CNN, where there's a there's a belief uh, among some that this is not an appendage of the Democrat Party. And a a Hillary pack in all but name. I mean, MSNBC is is a for all intents and purposes uh, an appendage of the Democratic Party. So you're going to go on MSNBC and have them? Okay, uh, fine, uh, I guess. But just wouldn't be my first choice if I was trying to calm the storm here. And she went into some. Uh, further detail about all of this, uh, first of all, I, I mentioned to you that she said that she leaked nothing, uh, and then she got into further into the processes here. Here's additional detail from Susan Rice.
5: It was not been typically broadly disseminated throughout the national security community or the government. So the notion that which some people are trying to suggest that by asking for the identity of an American person, uh, that is the same as leaking. It is completely false. There's no equivalence between so-called unmasking and leaking.
3: OK, um, I-, I think that's fair. But again, that's not really the allegation. Unmasking and leaking are obviously not the same thing. And as she has explained, um, as she has explained already, the process has some steps in it. But let's just say, let's war game this out for a few minutes here or a few moments. If you wanted to embarrass the Trump administration or even better, if you wanted to expose what you truly believe to be a massive International conspiracy uh, of uh, unforeseen and unforeseeable consequences to this country and our process of elections and the the future of our entire political system that involved working with a foreign power to, quote, hack the election. What does hack the election mean? Ah, whatever. Just people want to keep repeating it. Okay, If that happened and you were a public servant that had been at the very top of the national security apparatus and knew that people lose their lives in the defense of this country on a regular basis. Uh, people die to defend this country. You know that there are those who will go to those lengths. Wouldn't you want to just tell the public that Trump was engaged in this treason? If you believed it, I don't believe it. I don't think you believe it. But if you believed it, what length would you be unwilling to go to in order to expose this whole Russia-Trump conspiracy. They've been telling us for quite a while that it's for real. Well, if it's for real, they shouldn't be walking away from the allegations of surveillance. They can't, once again, you keep hearing me repeat this, but they can't have it both ways. It can't be both. And yet Susan Rice is saying, oh, there's nothing here. I didn't leak anything. If you wanted to get the truth out there, As others have said, wouldn't you want the information to be spread far and wide inside the government? Better question for you, if somebody, whether you or one of your close confidants, was going to leak information, such as the unmasking of a U.S. person in a phone call collected at intelligence, wouldn't you want a lot of people to at least theoretically have seen the information? It makes the leak investigation a lot harder. I can tell you I know something about how these investigations go, And it's obvious. You don't even have to know anything about it. You got a thousand people that saw something. Who told the press? That's really tough. You got 10 people who saw something. That's a lot easier. Just making up numbers here. But you understand what I'm saying. Oh, we're joined by our friend now, uh, Sarah Carter. Great. We got her. I know she's super busy. Sarah. (laughs) She is an award-winning national security and war correspondent. She reports for Circa News, and Sarah and John Solomon have been tearing it up on all of these national security stories these days. Sarah, great to have you back.
1: It's so great to be on with you, Buck. Thanks so much for being patient with me.
3: Oh, no, thank you so much for coming on. Sarah was was my uh, my battle buddy back in the days of real news on the Blaze TV, for those of you listening. So we we have worked together for uh, for years now. And uh, Sarah's doing great, as she always has, investigative journalism on this topic. Uh, Sarah, what can you tell What can you tell us that is really essential and based on your reporting and your sources in the last 24 hours with regard to unmasking, surveillance, and Trump? What What, what do we know right now?
1: Well, as you know, since we've been writing these stories for maybe the past several months, you know, following that, killing back the end, killing back the end, and of course, Sarah,
3: Sarah, We're gonna have to you get know. you, Sarah. We got to get you on a better connection. Uh, can we call? Can you get you to call right back? Because I can't hear anything you're saying, and I don't think the team here can either. Can you give us a ring right back? We have a better.
1: I'll call you right back. Sorry about Go that. You Thank
3: course. you. Um, let's take Charlie and Georgia for a second here while we're waiting for Sarah. Charlie, uh, you are on the Buck Sexton show. What's up?
6: Hey, Buck, it's nice to talk to you.
3: You too, sir. Shields high.
6: Well. I heard you say something with Miss Sarah just a second ago and I want you to tell everybody else in the free world that don't know that term. Tell them what battle buddy
3: means. Oh, well, battle buddy is somebody who's your buddy from battle. <laughs> I mean somebody who served with you. But well, I, I mean I mean it's it's somebody who's assigned to you in the in the army, but we, we meant it in the term of you know I meant it metaphorically yeah. as in we were we were next to each other and uh, on a debate show. I never served, neither did Sarah for those who are listening.
6: Well, me and you know that, but they didn't. Anyway, I, I wanted to ask you a question. My, my father served in Vietnam, so I've been a I've been studying anthropology and human beings for a long time, trying to figure out what happened after the draft was abolished. Did you see what went on? Because I could see it after I started getting down in the the in the in the numbers. They started overtaxing and overregulating and, and overcharging businesses, creating a job vacuum in the US, and they run a lot of businesses overseas. Along with that, they they also kept minimum wage very low, and they started skyrocketing the prices of a higher education. Now, my, my father's father couldn't send him to a higher education. My house couldn't send me to a higher education. I'm probably not going to be able to send my daughter to a higher education. Now, where can you go to get a job, a guaranteed job, and an education that you don't have to pay for?
3: Charlie, are you are you bringing us to the conclusion here that you think that uh, higher education is too expensive and so a lot of people join the military? Is that?
6: I think that a lot of people join the military. Because there's no jobs around here. Uh, at least in the area that I was raised in.
3: Did you serve out of curiosity? or
6: I did. 1st of the 19th Field Artillery, Fort Phil, Oklahoma. And my father did two terms, well, a tour and a half in Vietnam before he got injured.
3: God, well, thank you for your service. Uh, well, I think the military is huge, as you well know. And a lot of people yeah. join for a whole bunch of different reasons. And. I, I I can't speak to them as somebody who hasn't served, but I do know from those that I worked alongside with in in the war zones, uh, both Iraq and Afghanistan, that overwhelmingly it seemed to me that the the primary motivation was serving to serve. Um, but if if you, no. it, 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 I makes, mean, co- college makes, is college oh, well, is too expensive, so that's a that's a whole different <laughs> that's a whole different conversation. Now it's really graduate school that you're pushed towards, and I was being pushed towards that myself and decided to uh, bail at the last minute and not do that because I didn't want to take the loans on. So all these kids that complain about their loans, uh, complain about their loans, uh, they have made a decision. They've gone down that pathway. I didn't go down that pathway, and people need to be—go no. ahead.
6: Now, I, I, I love your show, and I think you're probably one of the most intelligent people I've ever spoke to on the telephone—
3: well you're very kind sir but um
6: the only thing that turned me on to you was that day that you took over for rush
3: oh okay yeah Uh, the rush villains
7: were great
6: yes i immediately said this is the guy this is the guy he's he's the one that's going to make a change he's going to change people's minds you 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 speak so clearly you make things easy to understand for the for the for the lower class Now. You know what anthropology
3: is, right? Yes, yes, I, I do. But, Charlie, we, we've actually got our guest back on the line, so I want to give you a last word here, and then I've got to get back to Sarah. But I do appreciate you uh, you calling in. Any last thoughts here?
6: Oh, man, I, I, I've been – I want you to run for president because I love the way you think.
3: All right, man, thank you. I'll take that. Shields high. Charlie, thank you for your service, and thank you for your call. End it on, on a high note. I like it. Uh, you know, Wow. Let, hey, what's up, Sarah? <laughs> there we go, loud and clear in stereo
1: president buck i heard that
3: (laughs) i know i i have have zero interest in political office but uh i'll take people uh you know telling their friends about the radio show that would be great so anyway sarah shameless plugs aside um let's let's get into the details what have you got for us on what's true what's not when it comes to susan rice and unmasking Uh, and sarah we're going to hold you through a break in a minute here because we want to get you on the other side to give you a full segment but first just just give me what you got on that maybe a little bit of a preview of what else we can talk about too
1: Okay, this is what's true, Beck. I mean, and I think a lot of people need to understand this: that when the laws were relaxed under the Obama administration, that means the laws in 2011, 2015, and then in 2017, when those were relaxed as far as unmasking and requesting those unmaskings, we know that White House advisor Susan Rice was accessing actually asking the nsa to unmask certain people in transcripts that she had obtained and those transcripts referenced donald trump and his associates what was in those transcripts we don't know because they are highly classified and we don't have access to them but we know it was enough to stun chairman nunez so We were, we had reported on the past and last week about these relaxed rules. We had reported that John Brennan was also given this type of of very significant access, as well as, as well as Clapper. But for the NSA to be able to request those as well, which was Susan Rice, it opened up a whole new door. And as we know today, she admitted that on MSNBC. She did say she did not use it for political purposes. That was her statement. But I think that an investigation and a lot of people are calling for her to testify before Congress and also look into what she was looking at exactly and why and those are those are some of the most important questions.
3: I know there are calls today for her to testify under oath on the issue are you hearing that that's going to happen or are, are the GOP members in the House or the Senate intelligence committee going to say you know what we've got to ask her some stuff
1: Oh, they certainly are. They are certainly going to push in that direction. Now, she did not give an inkling either way whether or not that would happen if she was going to actually volunteer to testify. That has not been that has not been made public yet. But we know that Trey Gowdy wants her to testify. We know Rand Paul wants her to testify. We know there's others. Chairman Nunez wants her to testify. So there's a lot of people very, very concerned. And I need to ask you this question, Beck. I need to say this question out to all of your listeners. Was she heading an investigation? I mean, she talked about the need to know or national intelligence, but she's the national security advisor to the president. She's not FBI Director James Comey. So when she's actually requesting the unmasking of all of these documents, we have to ask ourselves why. This is a very, very serious civil liberties issue when it comes to unmasking Americans or the names of Americans in conversations, whether that's foreign to foreign or whether that's American to foreign. These are very, very serious issues. So why was she requesting it? It's not the job of the national security advisor to lead an investigation. So she needs to answer those questions um, as to what she was looking at. And if they went beyond Russia, why?
3: And, Sarah, we could we could make this uh, all very straight. We, We could get into this and talk about. All the different ins and outs of this as we're doing right now, but I think it's also worth telling everybody or just or or summarizing for everyone that what we're talking about here, if true, would be a national security advisor using the powers of the intelligence community and its incredible and massive and widespread spying and surveillance techniques for the purposes of settling a political score with an incoming presidential administration. That is third world dictator scary stuff. If in fact that is what happened, uh, this is not—that's not an exaggeration. If that happened, it is spying on an incoming administration. It's incredibly serious. What are you hearing, just at a, at a gut level, from sources that you have in the intel community, in the intel community, either in the D.C. area or or beyond, um, in terms of whether they think there's something deeply wrong here, or do they think that this is? Uh, too early to tell where are they on the scale
1: there's actually two camps buck to this there's there's two separate camps but the bigger camp the intel officials that I've been speaking to and the people that have been most gravely concerned about this they say it all the time they have said look the most the 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 scariest thought for them is that this information was used as political espionage. This goes far beyond what our founding fathers wanted, what our Constitution establishes. So this is why why you're hearing about this story, right? I mean, it all started with the leaking of Michael Flynn's name, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, when his name was leaked to the Washington Post all of a sudden the world became aware that there were these biases and that people were unmasked. But I got to tell you too, Buck, I really believe that there were a narrow group of people, especially when it came to Flynn's name, a narrow group of people that had access to those transcripts, to those conversations between then national security advisor, Michael Flynn, or before that, and the Russian ambassador. And when that, when that information leaked to the public, All of a sudden, a can of worms opened up bigger than what anybody expected, and that's where they're going to find – I mean, that's the real law that's been broken, and that's considered political – I mean, that's espionage. That goes far beyond political espionage. I mean, that's prosecutable under the Espionage Act, the leaking of his name, and uh, I don't think it's going to be such a wide scope of people when it comes to that. I I really think that a narrow scope of people, if the DOJ asks the FBI for an investigation –
3: Sarah, uh, one more for you here before we're going to have to run into a break, and that is, what are the questions that you are going to try to answer next with regard to all of the Susan Rice unmasking Trump-Russia investigation stuff that is going through the news cycle right now? What are the questions that you're going to try to answer in the days and weeks ahead?
1: I would like to know who authorized Susan Rice, or did she do it of her own accord, but— Was she authorized to ask the NSA to unmask and by whom? I mean, did she brief President Obama on these unmaskings and why? What was so relevant to these unmaskings? I also think that we need to look at a wider scope of what happened since 2011. We need to look back and see how many more people were unmasked. I mean, was this just solely for national security purposes, but did the White House take it upon themselves? Did Susan Rice unmask more people prior to this? And, and I think that's a question we need to ask. Was, were there congressional people unmasked? Were regular citizens unmasked? I mean, th- these, these are things that we need answered. And I know these are concerns that people within the intelligence community have, because the intelligence community, a lot of the members that I've spoken to and the, the sources that I've spoken to say, look, we're not the bad guys here. We're trying to do our job, and we don't want to be made out to look to be like the bad guys, to look like we're spying on Americans, because that is not our job, and that is not what we are doing. We're here to protect Americans.
3: Sarah Carter is a Circa News National Security and War correspondent. Uh, Sarah, great to have you. Come back soon, and uh, have a good uh, rest of your day.
1: Thanks so much, Buck. Thank you.
3: Team, phones are open here in the Freedom Hut uh, sorry, 844. Gosh, Buck. Gosh, 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. Now, okay, I see this from a Politico reporter that I'm not familiar with, but it's a verified account, just came out, breaking news. We may be able to give you more breaking news on this. Producer, are you seeing this too yet? Let me know if you see any of this. Uh, that the White House, this is from Josh Dawsey, Political White House, Politico White House reporter, that uh activists should expect the healthcare law at an 8 30 meeting tonight. So we might have breaking news for you on that. Yep. So we will keep an eye on that. We may have breaking news for you. Uh we may may have breaking news for you coming up here. Um and uh yeah, that's that's coming up. Uh I'm I'm looking at this right now and I am thinking that we might have an eight thirty Eastern uh, text of healthcare bill that is offered up. Um, so, yeah, we'll be right back, team. Stay with me.
2: Buck Sexton with America Now. We are home. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles, shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in, 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. I will be voting against cloture unless we are able, as a body, to finally sit down and find a way to avoid the nuclear option.
6: The Democrats are afraid of being primaried.
0: Please. This uh, has been building up for years. All I can say is what goes around comes around.
3: Democrats vowing to filibuster over the Gorsuch Supreme Court nomination. Uh, Where will this lead and what does it mean? Got our friend Charles Cook on the line, everybody. He is the editor for National Review Online, also author of the Conservatory Manifesto. Charles, great to have you, sir.
8: Thank you for having me.
3: Uh, Gorsuch, doesn't seem like there's much of a fight for the Democrats to mount here, much of an argument for them to make. And yet here we are. They are pushing it all the way. Do you think Republicans will respond in kind and go all the way?
8: I think there's no question about that. It seems possible to me that there will be a last-minute reprieve. There are a good number of Democrats who are up for re-election in 2008 in the Senate. Uh, And those people uh, are in states that Trump won. Montana, uh, Tester, Claire McCaskill in uh, Missouri. Could I see a last-minute deal? Yes, I could. And when I say deal, I mean mechanism that allows the Democratic Party to save face. If it does not uh, materialize, there's no question in my mind that McConnell will invoke the, the nuclear option.
3: And what do you think about the concerns that people have uh, about the the character the character of the the Senate? You got uh, Senator Tom Cotton, for example, who's out there saying the following: Do you worry at all about this rulemaking, how it might change or alter the character of the Senate? No, Jake, I don't. Uh, For 214 years, the Senate had never, not once, in a partisan filibuster defeated a nominee to the courts or to the executive branch. That all changed in 2003 when Chuck Schumer persuaded Democrats to begin filibustering judges. Then that continued under the Obama era and the Democrats used the so-called nuclear option in 2013.
7: But there's a world of difference between Republicans using a tool that the Democrats first abused in 2013 to restore a 214-year-old tradition that the Democrats first violated in 2003. After this week, we'll be back to where that 214 tradition was, which is that nominees should get an up or down vote, and that's probably where we should have stayed all along.
3: Mr. Cook, what say ye in response to Senator Cotton? Well, I think he's
8: right, but I do think that the, the consequences will be a changed Senate, and I think it's regrettable. I think that's a separate question from who is to blame. Uh, I've been joking for a little bit that if Mitch McConnell really wanted to become a troll, uh, he would refer to the seat that uh, Judge Gorsuch is presumably about to take as Miguel Estrada's seat uh, in response to the Democratic Party's calling it Garland's seat. Uh, and I say that because that was the moment, not, not really the Bork uh, nomination, uh, but that was the moment at which everything changed. That was for the, for the D.C. Right, circuit, right? Right. The, you, you saw the Democratic Party starting to filibuster anyone that they thought might be good Supreme Court material in the future. And Tom Cotton is right to say that if one wants to talk about collegiality, that moment is key. And then, of course, uh, Harry Reid um, taking the nuclear option for all judges other than those for the Supreme Court in 2013. This is the inevitable result of that. This was a battle that was ramped up by the Democratic Party. But look, I wish that had never happened. Now, I don't think that it would make sense for Republicans uh, unilaterally to disarm I don't think it would make sense for Mitch McConnell to wait until the Democrats retain a, uh regain a majority in the Senate and then to exercise the filibuster. But I'm a little more concerned about what this will do to the Senate than is Tom Cotton. I think it's regrettable we are here.
3: Why? What's the concern, Charles? Ex- explain to me why this, this – I've heard others say this. In fact, I know my friend uh, Sean Davis over at the Federalist is of the concerned but still the right move for Republicans – uh, side of things. It sounds like you're there as well. The concern is is what? That that we won't have filibusters for judicial nominees? What, what, what do you see as the problem? Well, the concern is this.
8: Um, if you look at most countries in the world, um, they have parliaments, they have simple majoritarian rules. Uh, and uh, that is the case regardless of how big they are uh, uh, geographically. The United States has a federal system and one of the precepts of that system is that what the national government does should be limited. Uh, it should also be difficult to achieve. And one of the mechanisms that makes that a reality is the Senate, not just because the Senate represents the states uh, rather than uh, you know, a, a population-based a democratic body. Um, but because there are all sorts of rules within the Senate that make it difficult to get buy-in. And as a conservative, I like that because it means that when there is a law, that law, by definition, has a good deal of buy-in from the states and from the people, not, not even necessarily just 51%, but a lot more than that. And I think when it comes to uh, the officials that have an increasing amount of power over our lives, be they executive branch officials, be they Uh, judicial officials, it is a good thing to require uh, buy-in and substantial buy-in. Now, I think that we have unfortunately got to a point at which the the system has become so partisan. And also, let's be clear, um, progressives have decided that the Constitution doesn't matter, that the text doesn't matter, that that the Supreme Court should be a super legislature. That is the root cause of our problem here. I think we've arrived there. But I do worry um, that the Senate might start to resemble uh, more and more the House, and that therefore the checks on federal expansion uh, and on federal action, uh, which used to be constitutionally based, are now um, rules-based, will be diminished.
3: Charles, by the way, I, I saw that you also saw this, that 200 theaters across the U.S. Uh, were showing 1984, George Orwell's 1984, which is a book made into a movie. Uh, In protest of Donald Trump last night, without a trace of irony, it seems to me, you have people who ideologically, based on their opposition to Trump, I assume are uh, in favor of uh, being able to force evangelical bakers to make cakes for gay weddings, believe that if you rather uh, think that any refusal to accept gender as a social construct is a form of hate speech, Uh, And believe that Citizens United opened the floodgates of foreign money, despite the fact that actually it would have allowed the government to regulate books if it had gone the other way, without a trace of irony now. 1984 being embraced by the status left. It's kind of funny to me.
8: Orwell is much abused. Uh, George Orwell was a socialist who was worried that socialism would lead inexorably uh, toward authoritarianism. Now, it is difficult to transplant him into the American context. He never, in fact, visited America. Uh, He didn't have much interest in America, if we're honest. Uh, But there seems little doubt, given his writings, that George Orwell would have been a staunch uh, advocate of the First Amendment uh, and also a staunch advocate of the Second Amendment. You read his writings on this, uh, not just the famous quote about the rifle on the laborer's wall being a sign of democracy, but also uh, some incredibly interesting uh, discussions of how free societies required some sort of parity in weaponry between the state and Uh, the citizen. This was a man uh, who was a leveler. uh, And in many ways, uh, he he fit within the classical liberal framework that informs uh, American conservatism, even though he was uh, an ill-defined socialist. That uh, Donald Trump is problematic, I think, is obvious. Uh, I've criticized him repeatedly, including on your show. But to recruit George Orwell to the side of modern American progressivism, (laughs) really is uh, a step too far
3: what it shows is that they're familiar with some of the slogans from 1984 i know a lot of people are oh big brother and and maybe they don't even know that it comes from 90 but they're familiar with that but it's at so surface a level that they don't understand that an an overbearing overwhelming state is what orwell feared and that is in fact what the kids who are at these movies are not kids whatever college kids and older who are at these movies that's what they want. I mean, they want the state in charge of health care. They want the state in charge of speech. They want the state in charge of everything. They want Big yeah, Brother. Uh,
8: the party in 1984 is, of course, Ingsoc. Uh, Ingsoc is a neologism uh, for English socialists. Uh, this was not uh, a right-wing party. Donald Trump is many things. And again, I'm a staunch critic of Donald Trump. Um, uh, but I- if anything, the last few weeks have shown us that his root problem is weakness. Uh, not authoritarian strength, uh, unfortunately, that cannot be said for Leviathan, uh, which increasingly pushes into our lives, uh, instructed often by nobody
3: and uh, I know that you were just over speaking of uh, of foreign foreign situations here. you were just over in France. you wrote about france 's rightward shift for national review. just just tell us what your what your travels over there in in the land of the Eiffel Tower uh, illuminated for you, Charles, that might be applicable to our current political context in some way?
8: I think the important thing to understand about the French election is that France has moved somewhat to the right, and there is a real populist tendency there at the moment, Uh, and that the one person who seemed ideally suited uh, to soak up some of that anger and also remain a credible face on the world stage. François Fillon has unfortunately been embroiled in a series of scandals. Therefore, there is a vacuum in the middle, uh, and the uh, likely winner of the election will be a man called Emmanuel Macron, who believes in nothing. He is vacuous in every way. He's a centrist. He says he's not from left and right. He seems not to hold any views whatsoever. Uh, He uh, famously said France does not have a culture. Uh, he is uh, really— that, that, Isn't that pretty...
3: like the ultimate so- sacrilege in France, to <laughs> say France does not have a culture? I mean... it's, also, it's also untrue. Um, and
8: the, the result of this ha- has been that the more extreme parties, uh, the Front National, uh, the the new socialist party under uh, uh, Benoit Hamon, uh, have grown in stature and in influence. Now, I think it's likely that Macron will win, and in some ways that is a good thing because he is not crazy. He is vacuous. But as a friend of mine put it, and I wrote this in the piece, he is the worst person who could possibly be president of France at this populist and angry moment. I mean, this is a country in which uh, 25% of young people are unemployed. It's had 1% or or lower growth for five years. The current president, uh, François Hollande, who's a socialist, has a 5% approval rating. You do not want uh, a generally disliked, vacuous uh, globalist uh, who believes that france is not distinct from any other country uh, to to fill that void and unfortunately that seems uh, that that's going to happen in france
3: charles cook is editor for national review online and also author of the conservatarian manifesto check out his latest everyone on nationalreview.com charles thank you so much for making the time good to have you thank you so much for having me Welcome back, team. You know, before we get back into your calls and the news cycle, I just want to bring to your attention that thousands of people who are trying to get their home security system set up, they get ripped off every day. The security industry wants you to believe that the only way that you can protect your home and your valuables and your family is to get locked into a really long-term contract. They've got all these salesmen out there that are smooth-talking. They want to make you scared so that you'll just sign whatever they put in front of you so you have this long-term contract you can't get out of. That can cost you thousands, but there's a much better option for all of you out there. Uh, Simply safe home security. Look, I've got the Simply Safe system at my home. It has no contracts, none. You'll get award-winning 24-7 protection. And for just $14.99 a month, you'll see it's all wireless. It's incredible. You unpack it. You have all these little pieces of it that give you these functionalities for home security and it just takes care of everything uh, that you need in a home security system. So visit SimpliSafe.com slash buck to check out their new high-definition camera. Plus, you can get 10% off any order, but that's only at SimpliSafe.com slash buck. Go now, check it out. Go to SimpliSafe.com slash buck. All right, some calls are up. Let's take them. Dan in North Carolina on WPTI. Hey, Dan.
0: Good afternoon, Buck. Thank you for taking my call.
3: Good afternoon, sir. Thank
4: you.
0: Anyway, I I just uh, you got off on that your last caller there I I just want to say one thing it, it's so obvious to me that Donald Trump real, I've listened to him now for a while and he does love this country and he's trying to do what's right for this country that's my opinion anyway and I gotta get that out there but back to this uh, Susan Rice thing you know she oversaw all the Benghazi. Uh, fiasco, and I, is probably a light
3: word. Well, she was the initial messenger chosen by the administration right after the Benghazi terrorist attack.
0: Correct. And I remember what, you know, how Romney was excoriated by the press and the media when he made mention that he tried, you know, tried to blame it on the Obama administration. And I realize these are somewhat separate issues as far as the security and, and intelligence gathering and, and conveying to different people. But if anybody can believe anything Susan Rice says at this point forward, I, I just I don't see where it's going to go. Because to me, you know, they, they claim Benghazi was going to be the next Watergate. And, and I'm hearing this now with this uh, all this uh, leaking and everything, how it's all.
3: Dan, let me I'm going to make a prediction right now. Uh, I'll make actually a couple of predictions. Nobody will go to prison. Nor be prosecuted for the uh, for leaks associated with uh, Trump surveillance or phone calls involving Trump associates or anything. N- there will be no one that is sent to prison over that. Uh, no one will go to prison on the Trump side for collusion with Russia or any of any of that. Uh, these investigations will proceed. Eventually, public interest will wane. And people yeah. that believe that Trump colluded with Russia will continue to believe that, despite having no evidence, and people that believe that the Obama White House was involved in uh, political surveillance and, and targeting and shenanigans and all the rest of it, as we've seen here with the allegations against Susan Rice, people will continue to believe that. I don't I don't think this any of this, and this is very unsatisfying, it's why people don't say it, and I'm sure a lot of people don't want to hear it, but this is my prediction that there will be no satisfying end to any of this. And that we'll see this is largely a waste of time and resources.
0: That's kind of what I was getting to. That's where we're really at. It, it would be nothing. You can call it a distraction or whatever you want, but people forget Michael. You know, Susan Rice was Michael Flynn's predecessor before all this. They both come from the Department of State. They both, Michael Flynn being in the Department of State when he was and now being gone due to. Well,
3: Flynn, was a career, Flynn was a career military officer.
0: Correct. Correct. But he was also, you know, was going to be the uh, National Security Advisor for uh, Trump.
3: Right.
0: State Department, right? So Wait,
3: State Department, 100%. what is that? National Security Advisor is, is a White House position. It's not a, not a State Department position.
0: Correct. Okay. You got Fair me. enough.
3: That's all right. I just wanted to make sure we're on the same page and we're clear. Go ahead. You were saying...
0: I'm I'm worried I'm taking
3: up your valuable time no it's not it's, it's yeah. what makes it valuable is folks like you listening and, and calling in when they get the chance so uh, Dan I appreciate you sharing your thoughts thanks for calling from North Carolina Shields high sir and uh, Melissa in West Virginia on the iHeart app what's up Melissa uh,
9: not much Buck how about you I'm good how are you uh, I'm very well uh, I'm calling because it seems that everyone you know failing to know history we're down to repeat it Everybody's raising Cain about the filibuster. Um, the truth is, the filibuster didn't even exist until well into the 1800s, and it wasn't abused until 1975, and it's just gotten out of hand. The intent was for a simple majority. And the
3: truth yeah, is- I Yeah, you might have noticed this, Melissa, not to interrupt you, pardon me, but you might have noticed even with my friends, uh, my erudite and and uh, esteemable friends— uh, Charles Cook, and later on we'll have Sean Davis joining too. They're both very smart, very squared away, uh, stalwart conservatives, and they're just much—they're just more concerned about what this does to the Senate than I am. I, 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 it concerns me not at all. What would concern me is Republicans showing a lack of spine. And then we know Democrats go all the way. Republicans uh, equivocate, moderate, and placate, and that's not acceptable.
9: Yes, and I agree with that. And if we're going to go and start returning to the original intent and the original way things were done, let us also return to the original way that senators were put into the Senate by their state legislatures, not by election. That keeps the lobbying money from having any influence. You are then bound to uh, represent your state.
3: How do we keep the lobbying influence from from having any influence? I'm, I'm Sorry, I missed the very beginning of that.
9: The state legislatures used to choose the two senators for their state. That kept the lobbying money out of the senator's pocket. That also. But wouldn't that just wouldn't wouldn't the then senator, money
3: wouldn't more money then just go to the state the state legislatures? I mean, you know, corruption is a tough thing to chase. It is often like squeezing the balloon.
9: Well, of course, but at least states are getting money, and you know, states' rights before a centralized government.
3: Yeah. You, 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 make, you make a point there, madam. Melissa, West Virginia Shields High. Thank you very much for calling in. I appreciate it. Uh, where were we? I had some other stuff I wanted to um, get into with you. Oh! Do I have... No, I don't have... Uh, we'll get to it later. I got Chelsea Clinton uh, asking questions. we got I got to be careful here when we talk about nepotism and political dynasties because... It's a bipartisan issue, my friends. Uh, There's a little bit of a little bit of a problem on both sides with that, but we don't have to talk about that right now. Um, I want to get into some other topics. I also want to take your calls, 844-900-2825. Uh, we will get into, um, yeah, I think we'll probably actually do that coming up here. We'll talk about the uh, chemical weapons attack in Syria, and I'll give you, as a former CIA analyst assigned to and spent, bunch of time in the East and uh, South Asia, um, I will give you my sense of what we can take away in the aftermath of this uh, terrible chemical weapons attack that happened in Syria. It's got everyone talking about U.S. foreign policy in Syria. And of course, the way the media covers this now versus during the previous administration is of interest to me. But most importantly, what should we do about the terrible mess that is Syria? What does it mean for U.S. troops, U.S. national security? We'll get into that more. Stay with me. He's an ex-CIA
2: officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. But well, I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call. Freedom Hunt Operations Center. 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance. 888-900-2825.
3: Welcome back team. Uh, The worst chemical attack in years in Syria is the headline on the New York Times. Um, This was Earlier today, the United States blamed the Syrian government and its patrons, Russia and Iran, for one of the deadliest chemical weapon attacks in Syria in years. Uh, so this is bringing up, of course, what the U.S. is going to do in response to this civil war that the estimates are uh, range uh, broadly. But roughly half a million people have been killed in this war. It has uh, spawned the terrorist group ISIS, the Islamic State, which has both killed and maimed and tortured and brutalized uh, countless people in Syria and Iraq, but also been a inspiration for and, in many cases, logistical support to and director of terrorist attacks abroad, including in Europe and here in America, uh, with its inspiring of so-called lone wolves to engage in terrorism. I have a few thoughts I want to share on what's going on here, because uh, while this is a terrible atrocity, uh, it is noteworthy that chemical weapons have been used in Syria uh, numerous times since the Civil War began. Uh, Years ago, during Obama's time in office. And I can't, and I I want to focus more on the Syria policy aspect of this. And what it means for us is honestly the most important thing to me. But I can't help but notice that here we are early on in the Trump administration. And there are part of this, to be fair, is there's a new administration, there should be new thinking and a new approach. But I also believe that. There is a—maybe it's subconscious, but oftentimes the media in general will find, because it is the Trump administration, uh, a greater propensity to tell stories that are negative, dispiriting, depressing, destructive, or about destruction— um, I've seen some v- very detailed stories about Syria and raising the questions of what will we do in response to this humanitarian disaster. And this raged for years, really for the entirety of Obama's second term, and there was very little that was done about it. And in fact, some of the missteps of the Obama administration in Syria are hard, or with regard to Syria policy, uh, are really hard to keep out of this discussion. I know that there is a fatigue with, oh, it's Obama's, it's always Obama's fault. You hear a lot of national security and foreign affairs pundits that say, come on, we need to move on from that. But when you look at Syria policy, there are a few moments that really stand out that brought us to the current situation where you have the usage of chemical weapons. And what is the response to it? We we don't really have a response in place. What are we going to do about it? We don't know. But that's because it has been longstanding policy, it was longstanding policy under Obama's time in office to uh, not enforce the initial red line about chemical weapons, which president him, uh, President Obama himself stated that if chemical weapons were used, that would be a red line. Chemical weapons were used, and then nothing was done. And this John Kerry a Secretary of State negotiated deal to remove chemical weapons from Syria, clearly did not have, the intended effect if it was meant to stop mass civilian casualties. In fact, the Syrians recognized, and most of the serious policy analysts that I know understand this, and will even say it out loud, that once the Obama administration made it clear that there would be no penalty for uh, the Syrian regime or its enablers, Russia and Iran, for force escalation against civilians— as in, once nothing was done after the first chemical weapons attack, it was quite clear that there was very unlikely to be anything done in the future when there were not just chemical weapons attacks, but um, barrel bombs, which are a crude, really airborne IED. Right? they helico- The Syrian government deploys helicopters, uh, pretty standard helicopters for this Purpose: They will fly over uh, pretty low over civilian area, and just pack explosives into a barrel, and fill it with shrapnel, and then roll it out of the helicopter and have it detonate in a crowded civilian area. I mean, this creates mass casualties. It is clearly not a precise weapon, and regardless of its precision, it is specifically deployed in pack, uh, packed, uh, dense civilian areas, marketplaces, hospitals. And that's what the Syrian regime has been doing. You also have the Russian military using its air force against primarily non-ISIS targets in Syria, but destroying the opposition to Assad, that would be a non-ISIS opposition. So what has what the Obama administration's legacy in Syria in terms of policy really was amounts to not enforcing a red line, creating a deal that did nothing, that did not stop chemical weapons from being used. Chemical weapons were used, red line not enforced, uh, widespread systematic violence and atrocities against civilians, war crimes unpunished by the Obama administration, escalations by Iran and Russia against civilians uh, unpunished uh, with without really much even protest from the Obama administration. And that was in part because Obama was so dedicated to getting an agreement with Iran on nukes, that not want to make too much noise about Iran in Syria, helping to murder, torture and mutilate civilians, didn't want that to compete with the more important long term foreign policy goal of getting an Iran nuclear deal, you see. So he really uh, left the Syrian people high and dry on that one. And also over the course of Obama's second term, we saw that the, the non-Islamic state opposition to the Assad regime, the government of Syria, s- ceased to be a real factor. And at the end of the day, you were left with where we are now, a situation in which it was ISIS as the uh, indigenous Syrian anti-Assad force to be reckoned with, and Assad. And there wasn't really much of a choice between the dictator, Assad, and the jihadists, the Islamic State. And the civilized world, I have to say, as much as it may, we may realize it is odious and painful, the civilized world in a choice between a dictator and jihadists is going to go with the dictator most of the time, irrespective of what he does, irrespective of how evil and vile he may be, because the jihadists, well, they're coming after us. I mean, they want to blow up planes flying from Europe to the U.S. just to make a point. Uh, The Assad regime, while uh, grotesque and involved in support for jihad in the Middle East, isn't quite as imminent a threat to our interests as the jihadists of the Islamic State, which is really just another version of what al-Qaeda is in terms of ideology. So that is a legacy. You you can't talk about Syria today without understanding how we got here. Uh, And the overriding policy decision of the Obama administration on Syria wasn't, oh, I I, I need to not—just you know, don't do stupid stuff. I'll replace the word that Obama used, but don't do stupid stuff as an organizing principle. Even Hillary Clinton herself said that's not really an organizing principle. That's a pretty facile and uh, uh, pseudo-intellectual approach to foreign policy. Oh, don't do stupid stuff. Well, that's great. What's stupid and what's stuff? And we can— parse this all day it was really just not to be Bush not to get pulled into a Mideast conflict and that's now where I think we can transition to a discussion of what happens today so we have all of this footage that is out there and it is gut-wrenching it is horrific of Syrian civilians including uh, children who were murdered with chemical weapons and we understand that this is as heinous as it gets. And so there is an understandable human impulse here to say we must do something. We are the most powerful country in the world. We have the most formidable and unstoppable military in the history of the world. There must be something that we can do. And this is where I think the lessons that the American people have learned in a post-9-11 world, apply more than any partisan leanings or Obama did this, Bush did that, Trump should do this now because of it, I look at this in the following way. We tried, uh, and it's an effort that I have personal connection to and that I was on the Iraq desk at the CIA and spent time in that country and did my my little part, whatever that was, uh, my tiny part in an enormous effort to help stabilize that country after the invasion. Uh, But we swooped in to save an Arab autocracy from its tyranny, right? We tried that. And despite what people are often led to believe now, a majority of the Iraqi people were happy that Saddam Hussein was gone. We did depose an evil dictator And though it was only a small minority of Iraqis who took up arms against us, we we suffered thousands of killed in action and tens of thousands of wounded and don't want to go down that road again, understandably. Uh, There is, quite honestly, not just in Iraq, but in the broader Muslim world, uh, a lack of Appreciation for U.S. intentions in the Middle East. There are still widespread sentiment that we are imperialistic, that we uh, exploit, that we are dishonest with our intentions, that we do Israel's bidding. That is also another uh, conspiracy that you will hear from the guy who's a street vendor all the way up to the top intellectuals and government officials of some of these Arab countries, you know, that we are doing Israel's bidding in the Middle East. And unfortunately, that perception and, and the reality of our intervention in Iraq has consequences. Uh, that the Arab world uh, and the Muslim world and also, of course, the American left and the very transient and temporary anti-war movement, meaning when there's a Republican administration, the anti-war, anti-war movement is robust. When there's a Democrat administration, all of a sudden it disappears. Uh, but there are consequences to the narrative that we shouldn't have been in Iraq in the first place, that we were an imperial aggressive power and that the Iraqi people didn't want us there. We should have never been there in the first place. Okay, if if that's going to be the story that we hear, even if it doesn't reflect the reality of what it meant for the Iraqi people on the ground, who wants to be the one to order another 50,000 or 100,000 U.S. troops, not just into harm's way in Syria to destroy the Islamic State, but also then to take on the Assad regime, which if it's really about the humanitarian violations here, if it's about saving people from a gruesome and untimely death, civilians from a gruesome and untimely death, we would have to take action against the Assad regime too. And what we learned from Iraq is that if we took action against the Islamic State and took action against Assad... We and the international community, but the international community always looks at us to be the pillar that holds the rest of this up, would be in charge. We would be responsible for security on the streets if there were food shortages or riots or insurgency, as there certainly would be if we deposed the Assad regime via force. It would be on us. And once again, we'd be in the position of occupiers, and we would have uh, brave 19-year-olds from Washington State down to Florida and everything in between and around, walking the streets of Idlib and Damascus and Aleppo and you name it, trying to prevent people who believe that anybody who is a non-Muslim in those lands is an occupying evildoer. uh, We'd be trying to prevent them from blowing up markets full of people and pretending that somehow that's an act of worthy resistance. In fact, a holy act of resistance in the name of jihad. We just don't want to do it again. Uh, I know the people who I mean I know the people, but there are there are millions of them who have served, but I've interacted with enough people who have served at this point and spent time talking about this issue to get a sense, at least, that rebuilding someone else's country and providing security for someone else's streets when especially when it's especially not clear that we will be greeted not just as liberators but as protectors and as uh, fellow human beings trying to do the right thing. We just don't want to put ourselves in that position again. We shouldn't put our young men and women in that position. Uh, And I I think that's an unfortunate reality for the Middle East now because with this brutal and grinding and seemingly endless violence in Syria right now, uh, people are turning around saying, what can we do? And the answer is, it's not what can we do, it's what will we do, and it's not very much. This is somebody else's problem. Uh, We will help as we can from the outside. We will provide humanitarian assistance as we can. We will support allies and partners in the region and on the ground. But I don't think anyone in this administration or any administrations in the near future after it are going to say, you know what, let's get rid of both of the evil parties in Iraq, I mean, in Syria, with ISIS and Assad, and of course, then there's Jabhat al-Nusra, the Al Qaeda affiliate, and there's all there. I mean, once you start to drill down into this, there's so many problematic groups and uh, vicious tyrants, either in charge or waiting to be. Um, but as I said, this is someone else's fight, and this is someone else's problem, and we tried to liberate others in more than one country. In the case of Afghanistan, at least it seems the Afghan people realized earlier on that we were there as their friends um, and doing our best for them against the Taliban. In the case of Syria, who knows what they would think? Who knows? Um, But I don't see us stopping this. And I think when you look at the realistic options to stop it, it would be a large-scale U.S. military presence because just bombing from the air isn't going to be enough. You would need to have ground forces there. When you're talking about taking out Assad, that would not be quick. It would not be easy. And we don't want to pay the price. It is somebody else's fight. And what we see is that when nobody else is going to step in in these situations, terrible things will continue to happen. Uh, The world should be more thankful for America than it is. It's rare that I see anything on BuzzFeed that... ...is enlightening in a worthwhile way or uh, that I'm happy that I read. But occasionally they surprise me, and they had this piece out. 23 movies you probably didn't know were based on books. And most most of the movies they cite in here, of course, I did know. But I have to be honest with you. I'm coming clean with you, team. Number one on this list of movies you probably didn't know were based on books... Was Die Hard, the 1988 action movie classic that I could cite for you chapter and verse, you know, after five glasses of tequila at three o'clock in the morning. You name it. Die Hard is like a specialty for me. And it's based on a book. I had no idea. Roderick Thorpe. Nothing lasts forever. Um, eh, so I didn't know that. I did not know. And the original character is Joe Leland, not John McClane. So BuzzFeed taught me something. Other books on the list, by the way. Forrest Gump, obviously made it to the movie Forrest Gump. Uh, They listed Jurassic Park, but everybody knows that. Um, Legally Blonde was a book first. I was unaware of that. Mrs. Doubtfire. It was originally Madame Doubtfire. Mais oui, bien sûr. That was a book first. So BuzzFeed taught me something. Who knew?
2: Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844 900 Buck. That's 844 900 2825.
7: I come to the floor today in support of equal pay for equal work. You know, I honestly can't believe that we are still arguing over equal pay. The effects of this discrimination are real and they are long-lasting. Because in the year 2016, at a time when we have self-driving cars and computers that sit on your wrist, women still make only 79 cents for every dollar a man makes. And we're still standing here in the United States Congress debating whether a woman should get fired for asking what the guy down the hall makes for doing exactly the same job the game is rigged against working families and pay discrimination is part of that for women it's been a one two punch in the gut
3: i think everything that she just said is a lie um so we can start we can start there uh, that was elizabeth warren senator elizabeth warren who uh, rose to prominence as a professor at Harvard, in Har- at Harvard's Law School, the very prestigious and elite Harvard Law School, um, as a person with a JD from uh, Rutgers State University of New Jersey, uh, because at least in part she was a diversity hire and claimed to be Native American, as you know. Uh, so we have that. Also, loves to talk about the problems of the working class and working families. And uh, herself, I think, was paid something along the lines of $250,000 a year to teach a class for a few hours a week in law school. So, at the law school. Um, Now that's, look, rich people, I mean, people say, Donald Trump's a billionaire, he's working. Rich rich people are allowed to, uh, of course, and we hope they do, help out those who are not as economically uh, fortunate as they are. And fortunate, by the way, is a very important word. I don't know anybody who is very rich and or very successful, who has not also been lucky. Luck is essential. I'd rather be lucky than good. Luck is essential in in all things that uh, can be either a success or a failure. And so those who are fortunate, whether born into it, commonplace these days, some of the more prominent politicians we know of were born into wealth, privilege, and a famous last name, or they acquired it over the course of their lives. You want them to help people. Okay, fine. But Elizabeth Warren pretends to be all about the struggle and all about honesty, and she gamed the system and, I think, says a lot of things that she believes or she knows to be untrue, but she says it to people that she also believes to be incapable of knowing better. It's a very useful tactic of the... uh, Democrat, progressive, community organizer slash uh, firebrand, and that's what she's that's what she's doing here on. That's right, you guessed it, equal pay day, which is not something that we should spend too much time on, except for the fact that one, even members of the administration, now officially members of the administration, are giving this credibility, which I find troublesome. But also um, because it is a lie that will not die and calls for greater equality or rather exaggerated claims of inequality are the gift that keeps on giving, that never stops giving for those who want to sow dissension and exploit tensions within society. Because you're never going to be completely equal. No, No one is ever really going to be completely equal. You can get equality under the law. But economic equality, as we saw throughout the course of the 20th century, true economic equality is, one, impossible to achieve, and two, wildly destructive when you try to achieve it. And this, was, this is where, of course, as a, a conservative in 2017, I could say, look at Venezuela, but we don't even have to look at Venezuela right now. We can just understand conceptually that true equality is impossible and that striving for absolute I'm talking about economic equality, not equality of personhood under the law, but economic equality. It's not, it's not even a, a laudable goal. It's not even a goal we should try to attain because it's impossible. And if you if you give the government the tools to do that, uh, well, we already are doing far too much of that with the redistribution of wealth and the progressive tax code and the enormous government and the welfare state and the entitlement state and all of the different ways that government is constantly trying to even out the scales this is destructive for us it's destructive to our liberty it makes us less prosperous and more importantly less free but equal pay day was started back in 1996 by the national committee on pay equity that sounds like a that sounds like a fun party hey what are you doing after work? I'm gonna go hang out with the National Committee on Pay Equity. We're gonna, you know, have some Michelob Ultra. Uh so yeah, the National Committee on Pay Equity. And they're they they were there to highlight the gap between men and or their purpose was to highlight the gap between men and women's wages. So as a result of that, Equal Pay Day has been observed in April every year. Uh as a well, this is of course a, a common tactic of the left. This is about. Raising awareness, which is a very convenient way of saying we get to talk about what we want to talk about whenever. And even if what we say is untrue or exaggerated or untimely or unnecessary, or any of the above, it's raising awareness. So yay, for us, we're just raising, we're just like we raising awareness, man. Uh, or woman, as the case may be here. So they have a few problems, though. Uh, on on the "yay them" side of things, this is the lie, as I said, that will not die. It is a it is a zombie lie, however you want to put it. It, it will not stop that women are, as a function of widespread, systemic, and continuous. Gender discrimination. Women are paid less than men. This goes up there with uh, the minimum wage benefits mostly poor people and has no ill effects. People think minimum wage minimum is very popular. People don't care what the data actually says. And also the free college would make the problems of higher education go away in that it sounds good. And people like things that sound good and they want to be nice and helpful and they want good things to happen for other people. And so... It's just easy to fall into the trap of saying, well, yeah, I, well, who doesn't want equal pay? For, do, are you against equal pay? No, no, I'm not against equal pay. It, it reminds me of one of my favorite uh, television shows that gave us one of the greatest TV characters of all time, Ron Swanson. Those of you unfamiliar with Parks and Rec need to go back. It's on Netflix. Uh, I'm sure you can get it elsewhere, too but all the seasons are on Netflix. Ron Swanson, the libertarian government employee who hates the government. It's fantastic, also has a very a, a Bolton-esque mustache uh, and, dare I say, Buck Sexton-esque hair. Uh, but Ron Swanson is, is a fantastic, uh, fantastic character. And side note to all, that's a side note. <laughs> I'm just saying why you should watch the show. There's a group of cultists who every year say the end of the world is coming, and they name name themselves... This is just a a quick moment in the show, but they name themselves the Reasonableists. And there's a recognition by one of the characters that that's actually brilliant because, well, are you against the Reasonableists? You must be unreasonable, even though every year they think that a a sea monster is going to eat them all and it's the end of the world. It never happens, and they keep showing up in this park, and you get that that's the gag. But the point is, what you call something or how you speak about something really matters. And to say equal pay for equal work... That is a chant, and this goes back to Gustave Le Bon, and or Le Bon, if you want to Americanize it, and the way that you can manipulate and excite crowds for political purpose. You want catchy slogans that sound just, that sound right. You know, what do we want? Good things when do we want them now. You know, whatever it is, whose streets? Our streets. Whatever. That was Occupy Wall Street. I used to hear all these chants when I was covering them for The Blaze back in the day, in the early days of the bucks Sexton media uh, escapades. So, uh, equal pay for equal work, just the phrase itself makes people want to agree. But the problem is that it's not true. It's not real. Uh, and now I can go into some of the details. This is from a Wall Street Journal article that broke this down. Using Bureau of Labor Statistics, BLS. You look at this and you say, okay, well, let's start with, they 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 start with full-time employment, which is defined as more than 35 hours. Well, a simple side-by-side comparison of all men and all women includes people who work 35 hours a week and others who work 45. Men, this is from the Wall Street Journal, are significantly more likely than women to work longer hours, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And if we compare only people who work 40 hours a week, BLS data show that women uh, then earn on average ninety cents for every dollar earned by men. So it's a the comparison drops down dramatically, or rather the uh, disparity drops down dramatically. Uh, they also say the following: career choice is another factor. Uh, research by a Georgetown University economist back in 2013 shows that women flock to college majors that lead to lower-paying careers. Of the ten lowest-paying majors, such as drama and theater arts. You mean that's not going to pay me a lot of money? Oh, no. Trauma and theater arts. What about the theater, sir? I dare say. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, uh, Romeo and Juliet, Shakespeare, all that good stuff, but it's tough to make a living. I think it's tough to make a living in media, and here I am. Uh, And counseling psychology. Those are of the ten lowest paying majors. Those are two of them. Um, Only one of them, theology and religious vocations, is majority male. Uh, So, yes, drama and theater arts and counseling psychology, not a path to riches, and they are uh, female-heavy by percentage. More from the journal here. Uh, Conversely, of the 10 highest-paying majors, including mathematics and computer science and petroleum engineering— is he saying that men go into these things more than women? Seems like a microaggression to me. Only one pharmacy sciences and administration is majority female, eight of the remaining nine— are more than 70% male. And then, of course, we get into the one area of this where people start to get very aggravated with the other side. Life choices. Life choices. Uh, Women often leave the workplace for a period of time to raise their children. By the way, total side note, but fascinating, that disproportionately millennial men, my contemporaries and younger Want uh, a high percentage of women, a higher percentage of women, to stay home and be moms and help create a family unit than millennial women do. There's a real disparity here. So my contemporaries on the male, uh, my male contemporaries want in much larger numbers a a partner, a wife, or uh, who will stay at home. Whereas on the female side of things, they are like, no, I'm not. I'm not doing that. That that's. That's a part of social science that will be fascinating to play out in the years ahead. But back to life choices here and equal pay for equal work, which, you know, you got Elizabeth Warren out there, equal pay for equal work. It's like, oh, gosh, we have to hear about this. And it's not just today. Today is the hashtag day, equal pay for equal work. But you'll hear about it all the time. They try to pass laws. By the way, I I love this notion that you should be able to ask what your male colleague—you should be able to demand to know what your male colleague makes— I would love to know, and I would have loved to know in many different professions, what my competition or those also up for the same jobs as me make, but uh, I'm not privy to that information. So while they try to pass a law like that and it gets shot down, the implication, of course, is that this is somehow sexist or this is its like part of the patriarchy, man. It's just misogyny and oppression. Or you're not allowed to know what your colleagues make because- I mean, let me tell you. Let me tell you a quick story about that. Actually, when I was uh, when I was at the NYPD, um, second NY, NYPD reference today. I was there in the intelligence division as a civilian counterterrorism analyst, uh, assigned to the NYPD intelligence division. And I remember the day when someone figured out that all of our salaries, our individual salaries, were public record, out there for anybody with an internet connection to see. I mean, it wasn't like drawing millions of clicks, obviously, but. And anyway, someone found this out. I had been there for maybe six or eight months at the time. And let me I'll ask you this question before I tell you. Do you think that knowing the salaries of everybody, the exact dollar number of the salaries of everybody in your office uh, led to led to harmonious conversations afterwards? Do you think it was a morale booster or do you think that it turned into a scene from Gladiator, uh, you know, before Maximus takes over? I mean, you know, it was like it was a melee in there. It was bad stuff. People were not happy about it. And what we all came to see was that there were some people who just, for the same position, but you could negotiate salary, there was a salary range, were either able to, based on their credentials, or just through sheer negotiating and bravado, get considerably better salaries than other people. And it wasn't a male-female breakdown. It was a, you know, who came to the table with what and who demanded what breakdown. But man, that... And that's one of the things that people have demanded now for equal pay for equal work is that you can ask what your male counterpart makes in a job, but as I'm saying, the reasons that that hasn't become law are not that there are there's this uh, evil group of of uh, old men sitting behind in some smoke uh, sitting in some smoke filled room behind closed doors trying to oppress women, it's because being able to demand to know the wages of all of your colleagues in a private sector setting is a recipe for strife and disaster in the workplace. It seems fitting that Elizabeth Warren, who started out our segment at the top of the hour on Equal Pay Day, equal work for equal pay, my Elizabeth Warren voice and my Hillary voice are the same, so just get used to that. Um, but she uh, has her own pay gap because her staffer—female staffers, according to Free Beacon here, hat-tip, FreeBeacon.com, female staffers made 71% of male staffers' salaries in 2016. So, like, that's a big gap. Like, what's that all about? Someone explain that to me, please. Thank you. Um, also, we might have text of the health care bill that the GOP's trying to revive— I'm seeing here reporting, including from the Huffington Post. Ariana Huffington no longer there. We might have to have a visit. Do you guys all know Ariana? Do you remember Ariana Huffington? She used to be the Huffington Post CEO. Ariana Huffington explaining politics to all you dumb Americans. I think she's technically a citizen now, but I'm just saying she's, or she was a citizen for a long time. Pardon me. But she wasn't bored here. She has a funny accent. Um, where was I on this? Oh, yes. Uh, uh I was going to, oh yes, the health care bill. It should be coming out at eight thirty. It should be coming out at eight thirty uh so we may have some breaking news for you on that, but we've also got a call in here that's been uh we want to take for a bit John in mississippi w b u v john how you doing?
10: Hey, Buck, uh I want you to know I'm a fan of yours, just in case you have any doubt. You're doing very well.
3: Thank you. I I,
10: am impressed. I
3: I appreciate that. Please tell your friends. We Let's get more people down I, I, in Mississippi's WBUV listening.
10: And I did tell my friend. I have one friend, and I told him, okay, I uh, I want to recommend a very good read, very enjoyable read, and, and it would be enlightening. I believe your audience would be intrigued to read an article about Ben Rhodes, who is the uh, – he's right directly under Susan Rice. And Susan Rice is directly under Barack Obama. Ben Rhodes uh, probably knew he was going to be out of a job in the summertime, and he had his friends in the media write what is called a fluff piece about him, kind of bragging. He wanted to show the world what an important person he was. Are you referring to the Ben Rhodes,
3: Iran, 20-year-old journalist who don't do anything echo chamber piece?
10: Uh, uh no no I'm not I'm not even aware of that article. This oh yeah that that's part- quite
3: that's quite a piece. So sorry this you're talking about another one. Tell me about this oh. one.
10: Okay well no uh the the title has the words in it aspiring novelist and it's about Ben Rhodes and it was written in the New York Times Sunday edition a couple of months ago and I uh, I that's only, I don't remember the date it might have been in it might have been in December but it's sunday edition of the new york times and it the part of the title is aspiring novelist
3: yeah i'm uh, this is from may this is from may 5th of 2016 uh and 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 it it is the art just so just so you know my friend it is the article i asked you about we created an echo chamber he admitted they were saying things that validated what we had given them to say that's about the press and how Ben Rhodes was yeah. leading them all to one conclusion. So yes, it is that piece. It was New York Times piece okay. back in May. So you're just telling people to go read it. It is interesting. Yes.
10: Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. If you're intrigued about Susan Rice and what goes on, he, uh, 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 Ben Rhodes has the title had the title of uh, in charge of strategic communications, and all he is is a writer of fiction.
3: Yeah, he was well, deputy he national security advisor had- for strategic communications. Um, but yeah. uh, yes, indeed, John. Please uh, thank you for calling in, and please have your your friend that you mentioned call in as well sometime. Shields high. Uh, we are gonna get on the phone here in a couple minutes with my friend Sean Davis of the Federalists. We're just gonna do a rundown of his thoughts on some of what we've we've already hit on, and uh, it's always good times to have uh, Sean here in the Freedom Hunt. And then I'll have to tell you about some woolly mammoths. What's that? Oh, I'll tell you. Stay with me. <laughs>
2: Buck Sexton with America Now. We are gold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. All right,
3: welcome back, everybody. We are joined by our friend Sean Davis. He is co-founder of The Federalist. And we appreciate uh, having him with us now, making some time for us. Sean, thanks for giving us a ring. Thanks for having me. So uh, your reaction to specifically the uh, Susan Rice interview today on MSNBC, I watched it live. I just want to say, what were you thinking and saying to yourself as this played out on national TV today? Uh, I
11: watched it and was shocked that she had agreed to do it and that she gave the answer she did because she went into that interview in a pretty big hole already, given what we know about what the Obama administration did. And rather than uh, trying to get herself out, she just dug herself and her Obama administration colleagues in even deeper.
3: Now, we've obviously been talking about this quite a bit on the show, but I I want your take on why things, why she made things worse specifically. Where where did she either uh, leave openings or create more problems uh, for those who believe that she's, done something really, really wrong here. Not necessarily legal, but something wrong.
11: Well, two weeks ago on PBS, she was asked by Judy Woodruff about uh, allegations from Congressman Nunes that uh, Trump people had been caught up in Obama administration surveillance, that people were unmasked. And uh, she said, no, she knew nothing about that. That was two weeks ago. And then today she wanted, went on MSNBC, and rather than sticking to that story, which I think we all knew was false— She went in and then said, yeah, there was incidental collection, and uh, yeah, we unmasked people. Um, So right there, she's already admitted that she's a liar because she's contradicting herself from two weeks ago, number one. Then number two, her denial of the new stuff was a uh, highly parsable and caveated, oh, no, 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 I didn't do anything improper, and it wasn't done for political reasons. Okay, well, then you admitted that it was done. I mean, that, she went from a case two weeks ago where she knew nothing about any of this to 13 days later, magically, she knows a lot about it, and she knows that it was all totally above board. I- I'm sorry. That's not credible.
3: And also, it seems to me that she is establishing—we could perhaps call it the Susan Rice standard—but th- she is establishing a precedent here uh, whereby a national security figure who has the access, who has the, the legal authority to apply discretion here— to get uh, information in intercepted communications about U.S. persons and to have the real identity uh, of those U.S. persons shared with the, with that national security individual. And then, as we've seen from the reporting on the Obama administration's change in policies, disseminated more broadly uh, than was the case in the past, or at least there seems to be that possibility. Uh, But curiosity now would be enough under the just basic discretion standard. uh, If it's just up to her or up to any national security adviser. Oh, gee, I don't know. Whoever works for Trump. uh, Trump himself, it would seem, could just say that, well, you know, I I thought I needed to know that because I because it would give me more information based on what was in the report initially. Oh, okay, so I guess that's the standard now. I I just wanted to know. Well, she she created a big
11: problem for herself there as well because something cannot be requested to be unmasked. In this case, the identity of innocent private citizen Americans unless it was first masked. So we know that it was masked, and the reason it was is because the intelligence agency uh, that collected and produced that information decided that it was not of intelligence value. So it got to her and it was masked, and then she decided on her own. That it was of uh, you know very important non-political intelligence value. Well, by all means, Susan, tell us how you came to that decision. Right. Well, th- this I is I what I mean. She she offered
3: more. nothing at all today about w- w- uh, in what universe. Let's just say that the report today in the Wall Street Journal, uh, the most recent one that I've seen, is true. That she asked for an unmasking of a Trump-associated official after the election. In what universe is she coming up with a rationale for that? That she would then also be unwilling to at least discuss somewhere, somehow, maybe behind closed doors on the how, uh, on the Hill in committee. But she's got to. You, how can she come up with a rationale for this? I, I don't see it. Well, the problem
11: here really isn't the unmasking, in my view, by itself. The unmasking is just you know uh, kind of irrelevant. The problem for her is that it is part of a uh, very deliberate pattern of behavior from the Obama administration. They tried to get named FISA warrants on Trump people, and they failed. So then they just magically ended up collecting these conversations of these Trump people incidentally, and they just happened to need the names of these people. And that information just happened to be disseminated throughout the federal government, and then that information just happened to be illegally leaked to highly selective uh, political reporters with ties to the Obama administration, and then that just happened to be used to concoct this gigantic smear uh, campaign uh, with no evidence against the Trump people. So the unmasking by itself is not a problem. The unmasking and the continued lies uh, from the former apparatchiks from this administration are the real problem here. And the unmasking and and Susan Rice's lies about it prove that they know they did something wrong, and that's why they're being forced to lie about it.
3: I also think it's fascinating to watch as this plays out, uh, that you you have the media reporting for months now, well, you know, we have sources inside the intelligence community who who have been saying that there are all these terrible contacts that there's there are communication intercepts of of Trump people speaking to Russians. And it's just also bad and terrible. And now, finally, you have some journalists, some commentators, and the American people, at least some of the American people, turning around and saying, oh, so you have surveillance of Trump associates. That's quite interesting. And now they go, oh, what are you talking about? We we, we would never – well, which is it? It can't be both.
11: Well, that's right. I mean, two weeks ago, she, Susan Rice said she knew nothing about Trump officials being swept up in uh, surveillance. But now she's an expert on knowing that it was all proper, and she became an expert despite having no access to White House files or security clearances or anything for the last 13 days. Uh, The reality here is that there are two competing narratives. One is that uh, uh, Trump was some sort of Manchurian Russian candidate, a stooge for Putin, who was colluding the whole time illegally against the better interests of the American people. The other one is that the Obama administration uh, was improperly spying on Trump and then illegally disseminating and leaking that information to journalists. And I'll tell you, the evidence for the latter uh, of improper Obama spying and leaking is so much, so much higher there's so much more of it than there is for the Trump-Russian narrative.
3: Well, there there is some, as opposed to zero. So that's a good place to... There, there is real evidence, as opposed to on the other side. We still have zero. I, I have fellow conservatives, Sean, that are saying to me, you just don't see it, Buck. And I'm like, w- what do I not see? I- I'm still waiting for the, what am I supposed to see here? You know, it's not like I'm suggesting that Trump doesn't occasionally say or not even occasionally say things. I'm like, well, that wasn't good or I wouldn't agree with that. But selling out your country, being a traitor for the Russians, uh, I still would just like one data point. I keep asking the same question. What is a data point that's supposed to convince me of this? And it's not there. uh, But you connected the dots, I think, very astutely on the other side of all of this. And uh, I just think. That the the media's reticence, which we've also been discussing on the show, to, to connect the dots on this at all. In fact, they initially last night were completely. Susan Rice didn't think that this was such a, a nothing burger that she didn't feel the need to go on TV and talk about it. But last night, initially, I saw people going on CNN, and I saw people that are writing about this in the mainstream media. This is nothing. It, it denied. It's a it's a distraction. It's uh it's it's a joke almost. Well, it's really not, is it? What the CNN
11: coverage last night today was just an absolute embarrassment. I mean, for starters, they tasked uh, Jim Shudo, who is one of Susan Rice's co workers at the Obama State Department. They worked under the State Department together. And they tasked him to get an anonymous claim from someone close to her that nothing was improper.
3: Yeah, Jim and I know each other. I asked him to come on the show today, no dice. And we, we had a back and forth. Um, we know each other. We actually went to the same high school. And I was like, look, man, uh, I do think that this is not okay, and we should talk about it. And he has not yet accepted my uh, very free and fair invitation to bring him on air. Just as a side note to everybody, um, th- there there you have it. Uh, but, Sean, I also want to ask you about what's going on with uh, with Gorsuch. Uh, this, y- you worked on the Hill. You understand the ins and outs of this. It seems to me like there's really no discussion or debate here. It's very straightforward. Yet the Democrats are still— clinging to something I'm not sure what exactly what what is their argument at this point
11: um, yeah there's a lot going on there so uh, th- let's back up and just look at the situation Republicans have the votes to confirm Gorsuch they don't have the votes to overcome the 60 vote filibuster the Democrats are just fit to be tied that they never got Merrick Garland in they're angry their base is demanding blood And they have apparently decided that they have no choice but to filibuster Gorsuch, which I just find to be irrational madness. Because what's going to happen here is if they don't filibuster him, he's going to get confirmed. And if they do filibuster him, uh, McConnell will do the nuclear option, and he will be confirmed. So there's no way for him to stop his confirmation. But what killing the nuclear option or killing the filibuster now – does for them is it eliminates Democrat options when the next Democrat justice uh, retires or passes away. Because I can envision a world where the filibuster still exists because they relented on Gorsuch, and Trump is forced to put in somebody who's you know really pretty moderate. He's got to get blue state moderate Republicans to go along with it. I'm not sure McConnell is going to have the votes uh, for a Ruth Bader Ginsburg replacement to do the nuclear option. But if they make him do it now, They'll get whoever they want when that seat opens up. It is just irrational madness from Dems to do this, but they're going into it at first.
3: Right. So they, they, it would be smarter strategy for them. And let's just put aside all the hypocrisy and what they said in the past, and because we know we're talking about Demer, we're talking about Chuck Schumer here. Everybody, let's not expect there to be any, uh, any real honesty or integrity in this process, but. Just from a pure Democrat strategy point of view, I think, Sean, is it fair to say that if you were hired—and then just, just go with me on this—if you were hired to advise the Senate Democrats on how to proceed here, you would advise them that from, from a power politics perspective, pushing so that Gorsuch gets through only via the nuclear option, the elimination of the filibuster, is, is highly unwise?
11: I, I think it is just—I think it is so stupid— This is a guy who's rated highly qualified by the American Bar Association. He was unanimously confirmed at the appellate level. Uh, Pretty much everyone says he's reasonable, qualified, with a great temperament, and he's replacing Scalia. His uh, appointment to the court doesn't change anything on the court, and yet they're going to come out and throw away their ability, uh, throw away their leverage on the next vacancy over someone uh, who most people think is totally reasonable, who they don't have any power to stop anyway, it is so short-sighted. They are shooting themselves in the foot in the long term when it comes to you know, keeping their own people uh, on the court. But, but on the flip side, the only way this is good for them is if they're looking even longer term and saying, you know what, we're going to get control again. And just like Harry Reid's nuclear option led to this one, this one uh, will give us a pretext to kill the legislative filibuster. In five or 10 or 15 years. So, you know what? We'll just wait on that. And once that's gone, we can do whatever we want.
3: So you think the the assumption here may be that over the long term, Democrats just want to eliminate all of the procedural checks from the legislative side of things because they will be, as we saw with Obamacare, by the way, and Republicans have still really upset me on this so far. They will they will go all the way and not think twice about it when they have the ability to do so. They don't care about bipartisanship. They don't care about uh, the institutions and the and the legacy uh, thereof. When they're pushing for these things, they will just go 100 all the way as soon as they can. Whereas Republicans still have this, you know, hand wringing over some of it. I think they have some hand wringing over the nuclear option over Gorsuch, which is insane to me.
11: Well, see, I'm actually one of the hand-wringers on the nuclear option. I I think it is a terrible idea. It's destructive to the Senate, um, which means it's destructive to the nation as a whole. I think the Senate currently designed is very valuable. It prevents uh, majoritarian hysteria from taking over uh, American governance, number one. Number two, they can confirm him without doing this. There are narrower yet more time-consuming ways to do it that don't require them to absolutely kill the filibuster outright. Unfortunately, I think a lot uh, of members of the Republican leadership uh, secretly would like to get rid of the filibuster because they're sick of conservatives using it against them. Um, And then also, I I think a lot of them are actually pretty lazy. I don't think they want to stick around for a couple weeks debating, exhausting the debate, and then confirming Gorsuch. I think they're lazy, they want to get it done, and they want to go home.
3: By the way, any thoughts, Sean, on uh – Equal Pay Day, which is today for those listening.
11: Oh, gosh. I mean, it, it's a day based on a garbage statistic to make people feel good about themselves. Uh, the statistic being that, you know, women uh, are paid only 77 cents on the dollar for the same job, the same work that men do. And I'd say, well, look, if you think that's true and if you think men are really that greedy to pay women who, who deserve more or less, um, why wouldn't I just hire all women?
3: Yeah, the, the, the true capitalist would, would be a, a complete sexist in favor of women if they were doing exactly the same work at the same level for, what, 20% less pay?
11: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a no-brainer. I I would do that. Yeah, personnel sorry, costs for a lot
3: of businesses are the single, by far, the single largest expense. So you're yeah. going to get a 20% edge over your rivals? Who wouldn't do that?
11: Yeah, adios, bros. I'm getting a 20% raise today. Uh, it, it's just so silly. It, it It ignores so many things. It's been debunked so many times. Um, but yet it persists because people have to uh, invent nefarious reasons why things are the way they are.
3: Sean Davis is the co-founder of The Federalist. Check out his latest on thefederalist.com. Uh, Sean, always appreciate you stopping by the Freedom Hut, sir. Uh, come back soon.
11: Always fun to be here. Thank you, Buck. Uh,
3: by the way, there's some updates on health care, although nothing particularly pressing. Uh Tonight, I'm look at this. Members of Congress, ooh, it's almost nine Eastern, and they're still trying to do stuff. Uh, do they, do they get overtime? I'm so shocked. But we're hearing from a, a Fox a Fox News reporter that uh, even if things this is what uh, Chad Pergram, who's a Fox News reporter, tweeted out. Even if things start to come together tonight on health care, there's only a 30 percent chance they vote this week. So they, it seems are in the process of resurrecting the GOP health care bill. The American Health Care Act may get a second act. At least that's based on the reporting we see now. So breaking news, but not like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is huge. Uh, just health care. They're going to be talking more about it. And speaking of resurrecting things, let's talk about Willie mammoths. So my college... Uh, has become one of those schools, Amherst College, where I went to school, for those of you who are curious or care, uh, up in Massachusetts. One of the schools where the mascot became a point of contention because, well, he was a, he was a, a war hero to the British. He was a a British baron. Geoffrey Amherst, first Baron Amherst. Uh, during the Seven Years' War, he was part of the conquest of Canada for the British against The French. um, But he also said some uh, nasty things about the Native Americans and smallpox. And if I remember the quote, quote, reducing their number. Uh, So you had this this unofficial uh, British mascot for the college. Although there was the Jeffrey Amherst Inn on campus and they felt that they had to change it. Um, And they did. Uh, They did. And the change is to the woolly mammoths. That's my woolly mammoth noise. Who can tell me I'm wrong? Woolly mammoths have been extinct for a long time. Oh, what's up, science? Uh, But yeah, the Amherst College mascot is now officially the mammoth. So giant elephant, there you have it. Uh, Everyone's going to be happy now. No more cries of the mascot mascot uh, created genocide or anything like that. Uh, the only, in this case, um, I don't see PETA getting too upset about this, but anyway, woolly mammoths, everybody, Amherst College, that's what we got now. Uh, so I'm a mammoth, everyone. That's right. You're, You're listening to a mammoth on radio. Shields high.